At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We all have questions, and we're all looking for the answers. But sometimes, navigating the answers to cultural issues through the lens of the gospel can be challenging. Join us for our Asking for a Friend series, where each week we'll answer tough questions and provide you with gospel-centered answers that you can share with a friend. wonderful day outside hardly feels like the middle of summer, right? It's amazing, but I love every second of it. I want to begin this morning with a story, and the story goes like this. There was a kindergartner teacher in her classroom one day with a class full of little five-year-olds, and she was walking around her classroom while her students drew with pictures. She had all of these crayons and markers and everything set out so neatly around a large table for them to gather around. One little girl was drawing so very intently with so much determination that it caught the teacher's eye. And so the teacher walked over to the student and asked, what are you drawing? Little girl replied confidently, I'm drawing a picture of Jesus. Teacher replied, oh, honey, nobody really knows for sure what Jesus looked like. Without missing a beat, the little girl looked up and responded, they will in a minute. Out of the mouth of babes. Most of us, we have a certain picture of Jesus in our mind, don't we? If I were to ask you, what, what is Jesus like? What, what do you think about him? You might start with a word in your mind or, or a phrase, but that phrase would qu- quickly fill in with a picture. Your imagination would start to fill things in based on a whole lot of different things, I imagine. But I would say these pictures are best described as caricatures, right? And we all have them. And the problem with caricatures is that they exaggerate one or more of God's attributes at the expense of other ones. And what we're left with is a very distorted picture of who God truly is. And let me just process some of these with you. I think because I think if we're honest, we know that these caricatures are false, Those who see God as an angry and demanding judge usually are easily persuaded by mercy. Those who see God as a tender-hearted father can quickly forget that image when they want justice. Hmm. Those who see God as an intellectual idea rather than a living, loving, all-powerful being eventually find something else more appealing. Those who see God as their best friend, their bestie, eventually find another best friend, friend they like more. See, I think when we don't take these distorted views of God seriously, they stop us in our tracks. They stop us from knowing God authentically, knowing him relationally. Let me just get in your face for a moment this morning. If you see God in such a way that he likes everything and everyone that you like, and hates everything and everyone you hate, you have a distorted view of God. It's a counterfeit. To A.W. Tozer in The Knowledge of the Holy, his book, he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's pretty weighty words. And so I'm just going to ask you, what do you think about God? Honestly, what do you think 
about God? What kind of thoughts are coming into your mind right now? And as you think, are those thoughts consistent with his word? Are they consistent with the Bible? You might say, I I think that's my problem. Right? When I read the Bible, I read the Old Testament, I see one picture of God, and then I read the New Testament, and I see a, what I think is a completely different picture. See, many of us ask the question, why does God seem so angry in the Old Testament? Maybe you grew up in church, and you're familiar with many stories of the Bible, stories like Gideon, stories like Joseph, stories like David and Goliath. Maybe you even celebrate stories like Noah by decorating your child's nursery with cute little pastel animals, (laughs) a cute little boat and delicate raindrops. But deep down inside, you're wrestling with the question, uh, what happened to the rest of humanity? And God did that? Maybe you're new to the church and new to the faith and you're still trying to figure out what this Jesus fella is all about. You're interested, yes, you're intrigued even. You're, you find the person of Jesus compelling, but you're still sorting out things in the Bible that, man, they seem really harsh. Maybe terrible even. See, likely every one of us have read parts of the Old Testament that make us gasp out of fear or cringe and likely every one of us has read parts in the New Testament that just, they just grab us and they pull us in. They invite us in with a loving posture. I have an idea. Let's take that tension to prayer. Okay? Pray with me. Gracious God, we come to you this morning and we admit that we don't always think of you correctly. God, we have all different thoughts about who you are But we know that your word offers a true representation of who you are. God, I humbly ask that you would empty us of what we've concluded about you in our imaginations alone. Maybe through faulty and poor interpretations of your word alone. Through sound bites offered by cultures or so-called experts. God, help us to delight in who you are as you have revealed yourself in your word. And as you have revealed yourself in the person of your son, Jesus. God, give us a mind. Give us a heart that delights in your true character and not a false picture. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're continuing our series, Asking for a Friend. And if you've been with us over the past couple weeks, we're trying to answer questions related to the Christian faith. And We've received a bunch of them across all of our social platforms of all of our campuses leading up to this series, and we've tried to sort through those and deal with questions we think are the most pertinent for us. And we've done this out of really out of a desire to really provide biblical answers for you, biblical answers for anyone who's wrestling with questions about the Christian faith. And today we're looking at that question that I've already said to you, but I'll repeat it for us. Why does God in the New Testament seem so different than the God in the Old Testament? And I'll admit, at first glance, this question seems like it might be onto something. Right? It seems like it might even be plausible. Perhaps you've asked it yourself many times. I admit, when you turn the page from the Old Testament to the New, it's incredibly different. A lot of things are different. 400 years, in fact, have passed 
It's no longer the Persians that are ruling over the Israelites. It's now the Roman Empire, the mighty Roman Empire. There's new groups of people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and there's so much more that we could go on and on about. But to believe that the God of the New Testament is different than the God of the Old Testament is seriously mistaken. Seriously mistaken. And I want to offer a foundation of understanding this morning that I pray, I pray dearly brings you comfort. And it brings you peace. And that foundation is this. The God of the New Testament is the same as the God of the Old Testament. That's my foundation I want to offer you this morning. And that foundation begins, I believe, with the first impression that God gives us of himself. First impressions are so powerful, aren't they? They offer us a true, really, picture maybe of who someone is. And there's none more powerful than that first impression God gives us in the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. And so I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be jumping around a bit today. It's going to be a little bit different. We're not going to be in a dedicated text. We're going to jump around all the Bible since our question really asks, who is the God of the Bible? So we're going to be jumping around a bit, but have no fear. The scripture will be behind me on the screen. The book of Genesis really gives us a first impression of God's character that consistently runs through the Old Testament, but also continues into the New. And this morning, I want you to see three attributes of God that reveal his character and show him to be the same throughout all of the Bible, both Old Testament and the New Testament. And the first one is this, God's blessings reveal his love. God's blessings reveal his love. From the very beginning of time, we see God in the posture of blessing his creation. As you're looking at Genesis chapter 1, the first words of Genesis, we come across something very profound about God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God has no beginning himself. He's always been there. He's what we call eternal He has zero need. God lacks nothing. And yet, while he has no need, we see him creating something he doesn't need to do. But that's precisely what we see him doing. And God said, that phrase, those three words, they dominate this first chapter. First 25 verses, in fact. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be an expanse. And God said, let the waters be gathered together. And God said, let the dry land appear. And so on and so on. God is full of life. And he's creating a beautiful place for all that he's created to thrive and to flourish. Blessing after blessing reveals the love and the life that God has. It's in him. It's inherent to him. But let's look a little closer. Look at Genesis 1.22. It reads, And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Now you go down to 28 and even 29. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Those three phrases, God bless them. I have given you, you shall have them 
See, all of these phrases, they reveal a God who blesses the life he's created. He wants it to flourish and literally bring forth more life. He wants it to imitate him. He wants it to imitate him. He creates a a place for humanity that's overflowing with provision, that's got a mind-blowing beauty about it. God loves what he's created, and he wants to bless it. His first impression here is one of blessing that which he loves, that which he creates. And he loves his creation so much that as we, rerun, as we move on, he actually warns that life away from him, away from his instruction, leads to death and destruction. Both my sons are driving now. I didn't imagine putting death and destruction next to that sentence. Um, that was actually a slip-up, so, but uh, funny nonetheless. But they're driving now, and um, when my older son, Micah, when he first got uh, his license, Georgette and I started shopping for a car. And the one we bought was a decommissioned patrol car from Oakland County Sheriff. And um, he knew that we wanted to provide a car for him and eventually his brother for them to share together. And he was really, really excited that it used to be a police car, right? It goes fast. uh, The back doors lock. He wanted to kind of trick his friends and put his friends in there. I fixed the doors. I wasn't going to allow that to happen. Just can't have let him have too much fun. But I remember when he could start driving on his own. I remember talking to him. I said, be careful. I don't want anything to happen to you. I don't want you to get a ticket. I, I don't want you to get in an accident. Be responsible. See, as parents, Georgette and I, we want to bless our children. And we love them so much that we want to warn them about things we think they might chase after. See, out of love, God warned Adam and Eve about something they might chase after. Something apart from him. Something apart from his instruction. But as we read, the created refused to be God's creation. It refused to heed his instruction. They rebelled, and we all know what happened next. Death and destruction entered the experience that we call life. A life that was given. A life that was blessed. And it didn't take very much long after that for things to get utterly terrible. Listen to what it says in Genesis 6. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11 says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. All of God's creation was marred by rebellion, corrupted by it. What a contrast how things started. What a contrast. And while it deserved judgment, God was patient. Contrary to that heavy wrath and that heavy anger that's often said of God in the Old Testament, I want you to listen to the words of David in Psalm 145 as he reflects on God's response to a rebellious humanity. He says this in verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious... And merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Theologians really believe this is the last psalm that David wrote. If you know anything about David's life, it's pretty amazing that he writes these words. As he looks back on his own sin, his own rebellion, and all of the turmoil in his own household as a result of that sin, he still sees God this way. Gracious and merciful. Abounding in love. Good to all. Let's be honest. We've all stubbornly rebelled against God. And yet God continues to be gracious and merciful to us. Abounding in love toward us. That's how he treats us. God who knows all of our thoughts. The ones we don't share. The ones that we try to hide. The things we try to hide. The the masks that we wear. Through all of that, he continues to be good to us. That's who he is. How he always is. Listen to what James in the New Testament says about God's character. James 1.17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Listen, regardless of what you've heard, God has never stopped being good. Ever. Or holy. That good, and that righteous character that we see in the beginning of the Bible is exactly what we see throughout the Bible. His blessings always reveal his love. And his warnings are certainly a sign that he loves because he cares about the outcome of your life. But God's warnings also reveal something else. They reveal his mercy. God's warnings reveal his mercy. I'm going to jump over to Genesis chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. God's word reads this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. See, despite all of the corruption that we've been talking about, all of the corruption that happens from the earliest points of humanity's beginning, there was an exception. It was Noah. But what was it about Noah that was special? Nothing. This is the first time righteousness is actually mentioned in the Bible here. And how it's mentioned shows us that righteousness comes by faith. See, Noah was considered righteous. Righteousness was counted to him because he trusted God. Not because he had it all figured out. Not because he was literally perfect himself. He relied on God. He heard God's warnings. He listened for God's instruction. And he sought to follow it. And God working through that faith, he told Noah, I'm starting over. But I'm going to save you and your family. And we all know how the story goes. God gave him instructions to build an ark. But I hope you see that the ark is an act of mercy. Because humanity's survival was possible because of that mercy. And don't miss this. Noah received God's warning. He heeded his instruction. And because Noah received God's warning, God exercised his merciful patience towards him 
and literally preserve the human race. But Jesus himself stressed this same kind of response to his words. Same kind of response. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came. Sound familiar? And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Church, this is the same God. The same God who's giving a warning from a heart of mercy. Listen, to conclude God is some vengeful maniac who delights in destroying people who don't agree with him, you have to skip over a lot in the Bible. You have to skip over everything that we're saying here this morning and even more. Or maybe not know anything written in it at all. But see, when you do that, when you skip over everything and you cherry pick, you're ripping God's word from its context. You may get that angry picture you're after, but it's a false one. It's a caricature. See, the picture of God that the entire Bible truly presents is a God who abounds in love for you. From generation to generation, he offers warnings to out of a merciful heart to all people. He sends messengers to call people back to him. He calls people to repent. He longs for it, rejoices even when they do. Listen, I want you to think about this seriously. I I really want you to think about this. Does a God who has constructed a magnificently merciful plan to reconcile people back to himself, before they ever had one thought that they needed it, And they had no capacity to change on their own. A plan that depended entirely on him for every aspect of it. Does that sound like an angry God to you? Does that sound like a God who's seeking revenge? Walking around with a hammer just waiting to pound on people. It's not angry. It's incredibly loving. It's amazingly merciful. God's blessings, they reveal his love. And his warnings reveal a tender-hearted mercy for you and for me. Lastly, God's judgments actually reveal his justice. God's judgments reveal his justice. Skip over to Genesis chapter 7 with me will be in verses 11 and 12. It reads this, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. I don't know about you, but it's hard to imagine a more fearfully thrilling passage of Scripture. This is the cusp of destruction, the gasp right before death on a massive scale. 
kind of scale that we've never seen. A moment that breaks all of our eyes wide open and stops us in our tracks. Notice the specificity here. The 600th year of Noah's life. Second month, 17th day. See, the timing of God's judgments happened precisely according to his will. And despite his merciful warnings, all the earth and all humanity continued in their wickedness in Noah's day. To use the words of Eugene Peterson, Noah's long obedience in the same direction didn't persuade anyone to change. Anyone to turn themselves towards God, to repent and humble themselves and to consider their ways. At this time, absolutely nothing reflected God's attributes. Creation was literally destroying itself. And then, God demonstrated justice by opening up the floodgates to cleanse the earth. But I'm going to contend before you today that these are not the actions of an angry God, but a God who grieves over sin, grieves over the destruction that it causes to what he's created. See, at this point, it no longer represented him. It no longer imitated him. It, it didn't represent his character. The real question is, why would we expect anything different from a holy God? This is how God is revealed throughout all of the Old Testament. He's a God who desires to bless humanity. He's patient and merciful by warning the rebellious over and over, not desiring their destruction, but literally their repentance. He's a good and a just God precisely because he does judge sin. This is how God is also revealed in the New Testament. Listen to Jesus' words about Noah. Matthew 24. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. See, Jesus recognizes the same bend towards destruction that sin brings. The question is, do you see the consistency? Do you see the consistency? Because this will mark the time before he returns. See, he warns us as well. See, this is what the Bible tells you. At just the right time, precisely according to God's will, God came into the world. He took on flesh and came to the very creation that he created. And the wrath and the judgment of God towards our sin was poured out onto him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he, God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Church, Jesus is our ark that God desires to bring us into. He's our refuge from the death and destruction of sin. 
All who come to him by faith and repentance are saved from the wrath to come. Listen to yet another warning from the New Testament. John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. See, a good and a just God must provide judgment of sin. He must. And through the judgment of the flood, God preserved humanity before it destroyed itself completely. And through the judgment of the cross, God saves humanity before it's lost forever. And much has been said, and much can be said about the cross of Jesus. But I would say the cross cannot be nothing. It necessitates a response from every single person. Because if God is holy and set apart and righteous in himself, then such holiness and such character would be completely meaningless without judgment. Completely meaningless. Because in the face of humanity's sinful rebellion against him, God could not do nothing. He either must hand down punishment or assume it himself. And I hope you see cross shows that he chose the latter. He assumed it himself. Author and theologian John Stott says it so beautifully. The cross is God giving himself, himself giving himself for us. Therefore, the cross is surely everything. Simultaneously, the most profound reality and the grandest mystery. What is the cross to you? See, I think the question this morning is not, why does the God of the New Testament seem different than the God of the Old Testament? I don't think that's the question at all. I think the real question all humanity must wrestle with is this, why don't we see God for who he truly is? after revealing his character, his character excuse me, sufficiently in his word, after taking on flesh and coming into a dark and sinful creation, after dying in our place, taking a punishment that was rightfully ours, still, why don't we see him as we should? Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.